Welcome to MTSU On The Record. I'm Jenna Lowe. Dr. Jackie Gilbert, a professor of management, is the author of How to Transform Workplace Bullies into Allies, a book that helps people identify workplace bullies and provides exercises that businesses can institute to raise consciousness among employees and managers. This is an underreported aspect of being in the workforce, and people sometimes stay in jobs where they're being hatefully disrespected just because the issue is so misunderstood or dismissed as unimportant in some business cultures. Workplace bullying after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. MTSU's Department of Aerospace recently received delivery of six new Diamond aircraft, 2020 DA-40XLT aircraft, to its student training fleet. And the Austria-based manufacturer also refurbished 13 aircraft in the university's existing fleet. MTSU received the first four planes from Diamond in April. MTSU's Department of Aerospace has grown into one of the most respected aerospace programs in the nation. 17 full-time faculty members, 75 flight instructors, and around 1,000 majors place it among the largest of the nation's collegiate aviation programs. An MTSU Phillips bookstore, now operated by Barnes & Noble College, reopened for business June 16th as the rest of the university began a phase one resumption of more on-campus activity since moving to remote courses and work in March due to the coronavirus pandemic. Bookstore hours will be from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday for the time being. Coronavirus health protocols for MTSU Phillips Bookstore will include all customers and visitors wearing face coverings and social distancing. Additionally, the store floors are well marked with arrows and signage to keep at least six feet apart. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Jackie, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. How is workplace bullying defined? Well, there's a difference between um, unintentional meanness or incivility or ignorance and intentional meanness. For one, it's simply not knowing what to do. If I'm ignorant of social customs and I, um, I need training, that's something very different from someone who requires both training and consequences to change their behavior. Why has the business community been uh, less than uh, dynamic, shall we say, in addressing this issue? That's a really interesting question because recently there is an article in Forbes online magazine. It's entitled, where business doesn't have a code of conduct, here's why that's leaving you open to big risks. And in that article, the author suggests that every company needs a code of conduct, but in many cases, they may not have one. And the example she provides is someone who lied at work and explained there were no expectations in that area. No one told her she could not lie. So for companies, it's a matter of assuming that professionals come prepackaged with internalized personal codes of ethics, when in fact, that may not be the case. They may need that training that I alluded to earlier. Some businesses have mission statements, 
uh, not all of them have codes of conduct. A mission mm -hmm. statement and a code of conduct, I take it in this parlance, are two entirely different things. The mission statement is much um, smaller and broader. A code of conduct is um, much more granular and defines expectations. But to get back to your question, you were asking me why have uh, the why has the biz community been um, inadequate in addressing this issue? Um, I explained that in one of my articles. And the article is Organizational Diplomacy, the Bridge for Managing Diversity. And in that article, I address um, how companies are sometimes reactive instead of proactive. So in other words, they wait until something happens to address an underlying issue that was there all the time. Um, they may assume that everything is okay until one day something hits the fan and they have to deal with it at that moment. Proactive managers have their hand on the organizational pulse. They're frequently checking in. Um, they are committed to creating an atmosphere of inclusion. And by inclusion, I mean a place where everyone feels respected, valued, and appreciated. Could some workplace bullying be attributed to a, a supervisor's management style being totally top-down instead of collaborative in nature? Well, I think what you're referring to is democratic management. And democratic management is with people and not at them. And in order for that to occur, policies need to be formulated with the input of employees and need to frequently check in with them at least once a month, perhaps in a workplace council where employees feel emboldened to offer their perspectives. And these perspectives are taken seriously by the managers in charge. When a coworker is bullying and that coworker appears to be the supervisor's political favorite, what can you do about it? Well, that depends. Um, are there policies in place? Because if there are, that would be your fallback. If there are not policies in place and it's a toxic culture and managers either either overlook this behavior or they encourage it, then workers um, actually have very few options. Um, so it would be a cultural expectation. What does the organization expect from employees? What are the consequences? And are those consequences enforced? And if they see managers setting a positive behavioral example, then the employees are going to follow suit. I've heard the phrase mobbing used a great deal in connection with workplace bullying. Can you describe what mobbing is? Mobbing is where people hang up on one or more employees um, because they don't like them for some reason and they want to oust them from the organization. So strength in numbers. And again, if managers see this occurring, it's their responsibility to stop it. And if they don't, the mobber or the lead mobber it's simply going to amass more followers and people are either going to join in or they're going to remain silent. And some people actually enjoy this happening if they don't like the target. So they're more than happy to say nothing. If you're afraid of the bully or the lead mobber, it, it absolutely is. Or it, it, are there some instances in which the mob simply picks on a fellow employee, not necessarily because that person is disliked, but because they're perce perceived as vulnerable and job security is everything? Well, I think they may be perceived as more of a threat. If they outshine the mobbers, then 
they're perhaps making them look bad in the mobber's eyes. And they don't want this person raising the bar, so this is a way to degrade their status and humiliate them and perhaps lessen their ability at the same time because bullying really does take a psychological and physical toll. We'll take a break right here. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The Middle East Centered MTSU seeks to promote greater understanding of the politics, history, and culture of this vitally important region of the world. Its mission includes the promotion of outreach programs and faculty research. The center sponsors lectures by Middle East experts and scholarly exchanges. We're especially pleased to offer a new interdisciplinary minor in Middle East studies with courses in Arabic and Hebrew. This is Dr. Alan Hibbard, Center Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Middle Tennessee State University Women's Studies Research Series features compelling monthly talks on gender-related topics by faculty and graduate students. The series offers a chance to learn about research in progress and to chat with faculty in an informal setting. All lectures are free and open to the public and are held on the MTSU campus. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. We're with Dr. Jackie Gilbert a professor in the Department of Management and author of the book, How to Transform Workplace Bullies into Allies. Let's talk about some of the techniques and exercises you put in the book that businesses can use to engage their their workforces in this issue and become more familiar with the signs and ways to change the culture. Uh, Thank you for that question. Each chapter has many experiential exercises. And these require readers to put themselves in the place of someone else. And these types of exercises are designed to promote what's called cognitive flexibility, or the willingness to see things from another person's perspectives. And they're entitled, uh, What Would You Do? And at the end of these exercises, then I instruct them to go to web articles and get more information on that topic. Um, In addition to that, I provide assessments in almost every chapter and readers can see where they fall on particular behavioral dimension. For example, um, what is their conflict resolution style? Um, I also use these assessments um, to gauge organizational uh, learning. For example, in the diversity chapter, the assessment gauges how inclusive is a company uh, per its policies and its practice. What sort of motivation would a company have to take your book and say, all right, we're going to have a series of seminars or workshops in which we employ these exercises. There are some management styles I have encountered in which management does just enough to set, to stay in uh, compliance with uh, local, state, and federal laws, and anything that promotes a culture that is beyond that they seem unwilling or unable to do. That's unfortunate because the benefits for promoting multiculturalism and respect at work uh, can be huge, potentially. And um, in the epilogue, which is chapter 10, I discuss the benefits to companies for behaving in a respectful manner. For example, Harley-Davidson's market share rose by 35% and their output increased by threefold because the employees became co-partners in determining the company's policy, that democratic management you were alluding to earlier. 
by um, regularly um, speaking to employees um, in this, like a co-determination council, which meets regularly, which is comprised of a cross-section of employees. And these employees give their input on what company policy should be and also what problems they see at the workplace. And HR is tasked with taking all that information and revising current policies or formulating new policies. Can you rely on your human resources department when it comes to dealing with workplace bullying? I have heard workers complain, well, they're just there to cover management's keister and they don't really give a darn about labor because labor doesn't have any power. That depends again on the organizational culture. And in another article I wrote, uh, Diversity Management and New Organizational Paradigm, my co-authors and I explain that the CEO sets the tone. So if the CEO sets a tone of respect, then they are going to give HR the freedom and perhaps the mandate to change policies so that they do in fact promote this inclusion that's so important to retaining um, workers. Um, the, Converse of that is if the management is unsupportive or apathetic or worst case scenario, they encourage abuse, then HR might be, um, you know, they might have their hands tied. They might want to do something different, but in fact, they can't do something different. There are some human resources personnel who have told me, just because your boss is a jerk doesn't necessarily mean he's doing anything illegal. While that might be true, what do you do when the boss's behavior is intimidating and counterproductive, but not illegal, and there are few protections, if any, in place? Well, again, I would go back to the organizational policy. Do you have one? If there's no policy, then that puts the employee in a precarious position. If there is a policy, that employee's behavior will be molded accordingly. So if in my performance appraisal, um, I'm held accountable for how I behave, then I'm going to get with a program or I'm going to self-select out. So this is very much um, a cultural type of thing. Either my culture values people and it's uh, committed to doing the right thing by the employees on all levels, um, or you may have um, a sense of mayhem at work. You know, I've heard that there were studies practically all my life that show, and uh, public opinion polls as well, that a satisfied employee is a more productive employee, mm -hmm. and an employee who feels invested in yes. what the company stands for, who feels some sense of fulfillment. And I'm not just talking about getting a raise every year, but some sense right. of internal fulfillment right. in doing good work and being yes. reported for that work in, in mm -hmm. some way. This has been proven in peer review studies, but there are some members of the business community who just doesn't, don't seem to get that message. It would seem to, to me to be to their benefit if they want to increase productivity and the bottom line mm -hmm. uh, to take that more into consideration. Would right. that not be logical? Uh, yes. Uh, however, um, if firms are apathetic, um, there are other consequences than the ones you raise. For example, firms are tracked on social media now, and so are bosses. 
and this occurs instantaneously. So if you are a boss who behaves in, in the fashion you described, or an organization that has a culture that um, isn't clearly defined, then people are going to find out about it sooner rather than later. So certain companies develop certain reputations uh, because they've been talked about by ex or current employees on Facebook or Twitter. People tell and share horror stories with one another yes. and the word gets around uh, not just through the traditional grapevine but through technology as well. Right. So managers live in a fishbowl now. There's really no place to hide. Is there a perceivable difference, or perhaps your research has not gone into this arena, but is there a perceivable difference between workplace bullying in the public sector and the private sector? Or is there is bullying any greater or lesser in either area of, uh, of labor? I think it occurs in both sectors. And, and again, the extent to which it occurs depends not only on the manager, but on the company itself. So whether you're public or you're private, policies, um, the CEO setting the correct tone, that person enforcing that throughout the company is what will determine whether your culture is positive or not so positive. Time for another break. We'll return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. Expanding Your Horizons is an annual hands-on science and math conference for middle and high school girls. EYH enables girls to investigate careers in science and math and to talk with female leaders in those fields that are so essential to our nation's future. EYH also provides the girls with fun hands-on activities and allows them to meet girls with similar interests. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, EYH Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. The Forensic Anthropology Search and Recovery Team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public, and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer at our CSI MTSU camp. I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of FIRE. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The book is How to Transform Workplace Bullies into Allies. Dr. Jackie Gilbert is the author. She's a professor in the Department of Management. Transforming workplace bullies into allies. Are you, when you say that in the title, are you talking about a sea change in the way individuals do business or in their character or personality? Or are you talking more about a change in the bureaucracy or in the culture? I think both because it's a macro and a micro level problem. It's a macro level issue in that uh, leadership, um, again, sets expectations. It's a micro level issue in that employees, how they relate to one another interpersonally will impact how their coworkers feel. And that results in spillover. How you feel at work impacts how you interact at home and other spheres of your life. So if, an empl if a, a, a company chooses to do the right thing and draft a code of conduct that all of its employees and managers have to follow, what are some of the key components 
that you would recommend be in it? And what sort of enforcement measures do you think should be in it to make sure that it has teeth, that there are consequences for violators? Um, well, that's an interesting question because I was a member of the Model Abuse of Conduct Prevention Policy Work Group Committee in 2014, which drafted that policy for uh, the state of Tennessee. And in that policy has several components. We outline what defines abusive conduct, what is not abusive conduct. Managers simply uh, exercising their prerogative is not abusive conduct. Um, the organizations have training. There should, of course, be um, consequences. And what is the reporting mechanism? So all of those things need to be in place. And it also needs to be in place uh, in investigation um, procedure as well. Because just because someone is accused doesn't mean they necessarily did something or there might be a, just a perception they did something and something else happened instead. Would having a code of conduct, an enforceable code of conduct, necessarily require hiring additional personnel? Well, I think that could be done uh, by the um, HR personnel, but the one that we drafted, uh, the Model of Use of Conduct Prevention Policy, is on the web. Organizations can look at that. I think they can modify that or, or use the one that, that's there. For new employees going into the company that has adopted a code of conduct, should there, this become part of the new employee orientation to help them get adjusted to the corporate culture from the get-go? Uh, so that they do not run afoul of it unintentionally. Oh, absolutely. And uh, that should be part of their training. That should be part of the orientation. I think it should be posted within the company. There should be refresher courses. And that shouldn't be it. There should also be additional training in emotional intelligence, empathy, in um, multicultural aspects of the workplace, in diversity, in nonviolent communication, for example. So all of these things need to be present and work in tandem in order to change your cultures to where it's more respectful of the employee. It's an ongoing process. It isn't one and done, we did the policy, now that's it. Because you're continuing to get this feedback from employees and what worked last month may need tweaking the next month. So it's an ongoing process. Wouldn't you like to see some of the things that you're talking about become uh, as mandatory as our yearly sexual harassment online training and things that like that, that we at MTSU, as MTSU workers, have to do each and every year? But again, I think it's up to the organization. Uh, what, what type of culture do they want to promote? And if the organization wants specific things in place, then they're going to have again, an ongoing program. And some of it can be computer training. Uh, some of it can be on ground. Uh, for example, I brought a student team uh, into a company to present on the culture of India. They presented the business and the social customs, and they tailored that training to that specific organization's industry. And they said it's one of the best trainings they ever had. So again, it's up to the company. There are so many things they can do, and partnering with the university for that training, I think, is a win-win. Um, I've brought student teams into corporate headquarters. I've brought executives to MPSU, and I've also brought student teams into Oakland High School to present. So there are many different avenues a company can take 
when they are trying to promote this kind of training within their workforce. You think it should be mandatory for all employees in the company if they choose to adopt a code of conduct. This kind of training should be mandatory as opposed to just optional. Well, I think that's up to the company, but I think it should be strongly encouraged for sure. When they attend, it's it's not something that they would have to suffer through, I don't, I don't think. If they enjoy the training, they're going to remember it. But you don't just want people who are interested in it to show up. You'd like to gain the attention of people who maybe think this isn't for them, but because it is fun, maybe mm-hmm. they want to participate. Absolutely. If your bosses and coworkers seem totally irredeemable, even after counseling is the only recourse to quit and get another job? Um, again, if they're being appraised on those dimensions, they typically will shape their behavior in accordance. Social learning theory suggests that people take their cues from individuals who set the tone. So if I think my paycheck might be in jeopardy, I'm either going to get with a program or conversely, I'll self-select out into an organization that better supports my value system. So in a large company, a great deal depends upon what kind of a person the CEO is and what kind of a a tone that individual chooses to set for the company. Oh, absolutely. You know, they're the ones in charge and it's a trickle down. If this is how it's going to be in the culture, then the managers are going to follow suit. And again, they're going to espouse those same recommendations to people who are lower in the hierarchy. What other resources would you recommend besides your book uh, to people who feel they are being bullied in, in the workplace? I know Dr. Gary Namey, has the Workplace Bullying Institute Mm -hmm. out in California, and he has come to campus before to speak, I believe under your auspices, as a matter of fact. Yes, I invited him as part of the Distinguished Lecture Fund, but uh, he has a website, and there are many resources on that website. There are many websites for employees who feel that they're bullied, and there are many resources on the web, so the web is a great resource. I would recommend uh, doing a search. Although you are an academic, uh, let's not run people off by thinking, oh my God, it's a college textbook. I won't be able to read it. It's utterly accessible to the general public. It's more of a training manual. That's how I try to make it very applicable uh, applied. Maybe even will be a textbook perhaps in classes about this topic. Um, that's, that would be great, yes. Dr. Jackie Gilbert, professor of management, author of How to Transform Workplace Bullies into Allies. Thanks for being our guest today. We appreciate it. Thank you. We'll be right back. The MTSU Department of Art has the newest facility for visual arts in the state with approximately 50,000 square feet of space, including high-tech computers and computer-driven equipment for multimedia, graphic design, printmaking, sculpture, painting, and ceramics. We feature a visiting artist lecture program and an exhibition program that exposes students to work by national and international artists. To find out more, visit mtsunews.com. Women in Science and Engineering, or WISE, helps college women prepare for and become involved in science-related careers. WISE nurtures women's interest in these fascinating and critical fields and provides mentoring and networking opportunities. The group's main goal is to assure women of their importance in all scientific and technical fields and to promote equal opportunity and treatment of women in science. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, WISE advisor. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Randy Weiler has the middle moment. 
The MTSU Aerospace Department's tremendous growth includes the recent addition of six new Diamond aircraft and 13 refurbished training planes for student pilots. Flight Operations Center Program Manager Nick Linzicki shares about the overall expansion. We are experiencing tremendous growth in the aerospace department and in the industry. We're fortunate we have over a thousand students in the department. Uh, we've got six majors, six concentrations within our degree program. We've been growing like crazy. We've actually added about 10 aircraft over the last year. In addition to those new aircraft, which are incredibly capable, we've got a lot of new simulation devices coming in over the next few months. And that's because the careers in the aviation industry are just a phenomenal opportunity. And so we've got a lot of student interest, folks going out to the regional airlines, moving into the majors, and just have tremendous careers in front of them. So we're, we couldn't be more proud of, of all the growth and all of our students and their accomplishments. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.